Amen. Well, everybody, you can take your seats. Um, I just want to remind us of something that shouldn't be passed over. We're really a blessed church in the sense that we had three men who accurately preached from God's Word over the last three weeks, Josh, Greg, and uh, Darren Violet. They did such an excellent job accurately dividing the Word straight as an arrow and feeding the flock of God. It's just, it's just a great blessing, and I wanted you to just kind of remember, yeah, that's really cool, because that doesn't happen in a lot of churches. So thanks to those guys. They did a great job. Now, if you've been to a Broadway musical, oh, by the way, Revelation 21 is where we're going, the first eight verses. That ought to get your attention. Um, so if you've ever been to a Broadway musical, then you are familiar, or even a, a ballet or an opera, you are familiar with um, overtures. And in overtures, the, the uh, musical writers... <clears throat> Uh, collect, you know, the, the famous strains of music that they're going to, uh, you're going to hear through the rest of the, the uh, show. So, you know, think about, and, and some of those tunes become really popular, you know, think about West Side Story and, and the song Tonight. I mean, I mean, could there be a better love song than that, right? Or how about My Fair Lady? I could have danced all night. Well, some people can, but not me, right? But there are show tunes, and, and they, they capture our attention, and the purpose of an of a, um, uh, overture is to sort of get the audience on the edge of their seats so that they are ready for the show as it unfolds. And if it's a favorite mu musical, you know, you just simply cannot wait for that, for that particular song that comes your way. A couple of my favorite musicals, Camelot and Oliver, and I love all the music that's in them. And, and, when, they, and when King, the King uh, Arthur sings Camelot, I go, okay, I'm ready. Sing it to me, baby. Okay. Now, what I want you to do, we're going to have a contest here, but you, the middle section and this section, you're not playing. I'm sorry. But the other services had their chances, and that, and that excluded you. So if you'd come, you know, I'm just saying. So this section gets to play the contest, what's that tune? So I'm going to play you, or you're going to hear. I'm not going to play it. No way. You're going to hear the overture of a Broadway show, and I want you to um, identify that tune, and if you win you get this book that the elders read a couple of years ago called Rediscover Church, Why the Body of Christ is Essential. So it's good read. It's a good book. So here is, here is, here is that tune. <laughs> no musical people are allowed to answer. What? Phantom of the Opera. Okay. So I know everybody knows this song, right? All right. Uh, we saw that show about a, uh, about a year ago. It's the longest-running show on Broadway. Uh, 34 years, I think, uh, Tim told me. And I'll tell you what, when that organ went off in the theater, uh, the, the crowd just went, yes! I said, whoa, what's on the way? That's what an overture ought to do. So we're going to look at the first eight verses of this particular <clears throat> passage in Revelation because that's what John is doing. He's giving us a look and a glimpse into the new heavens and the new earth. And for the next 
four weeks, this week and three more, we're going to look at these passages in Revelation 21 to Revelation 22, about verse 5, to see what awaits the believer. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are giving us a view of what's out there, what you have planned. Your word says that no eye has seen nor has ear heard what you have uh, readied for your church. But we have a glimpse, and we pray that this glimpse will inspire and deepen our love for you. We pray this in Jesus' name, and everybody says, amen. Now, the... uh, the language in, in Revelation is so rich, it would take, I think, several weeks even to go through these passages. My approach is going to be much more modest. First of all, I want to, uh, to buy the sermons, create, if I can, an appetite in you for the new heavens and the new earth. In other words, a longing for it. There, there is a longing in us for the kinds of things that God has planned for us. And the, but the second, I think, is even more um, practical in some ways. The second goal is to encourage us to regularly meditate on what we see of the new heavens and new earth in order that it has an impact and a direction in our lives now. I don't believe that God has revealed these things to us in order for us to just kind of dream on and say, oh, someday. I think these things are to intend, are intended by God to direct our lives as his children and as disciples uh, now to impact our lives today. And I'm, and I'm taking all of this, this idea of meditating over these script, uh, scriptures from Colossians 3, where it says this, since you have been raised to new life in Christ, set your sights on the realities of heaven, where Christ sits at the place of honor at God's right hand. Think about the things of heaven not the things of earth. Now, this is the New Living Translation, and I chose it specifically because of what the translators wrote here. Think about the realities of heaven, and that's what we're going to do over the next four weeks. Meditate, think about the realities of heaven because they will benefit our souls. Now, before we jump into this text, um, we need to set the sort of the ground rules for understanding how to interpret Revelation. Believe me, it's not really that easy. It, I wish it were easier. I have found it very difficult. But there are certain ground rules that we can apply that really do help us along. And the very first one is to understand there's a variety of forms of writing and literature in the Bible. There's epistles and there's letters and there's poems and there's um, narrative and that sort of thing. This is called apocalyptic literature. It was popular in the time between the two testaments and also in John's day. And, and, and it's always characterized by a human being talking to heavenly beings. And so we see that in, in John chapter one, or Revelation chapter 1 where John is speaking to, to the Lord Jesus, but he also speaks to angels along the way. And so there's a communication from heaven to human beings through a heavenly being. And the purpose of apocalypse literature was to speak about transcendent truths, things that are out there that have contemporary impact in the situation these people lived in. And it's often communicated by visions and dreams and sometimes some very bizarre uh, symbols. 
Most often what you see in apocalyptic literature is the narrative of the battle between good and evil. In fact, that's what Lord of the Rings was about. That's what the Narnian Chronicles were all about. If you remember in the, in, uh, the Lord of the Rings when Gandalf comes riding down that hill at Helm's Deep and he's just riding through the enemy and the enemy is scattering because he's defeated the enemy, that's what apocalyptic literature looks like and communicates to its audience. Now, John's original audience was the church of Jesus Christ under persecution. Uh, some people say that this, this was written during the AD uh, 60s when Nero was the craziest emperor that ever existed, or maybe in the 90s, AD 90s, when Domitian, who was the most violent emperor ever to exist, both of those decades had persecution in them, and it doesn't really matter which decade you tend to fall into. It doesn't, it doesn't matter because what we do know is that John was exiled to the island of Patmos in order to, well, be exiled because of preaching the gospel. And so the church was under heavy persecution in both of those decades. They were the target. And the target... Uh, the, the aim of the Roman Empire was to get Christians to worship the emperors in both of those decades, all through those decades. And Christians, of course, could refuse, and if they refused, then they would lose their homes and their livelihoods, and some of them might even lose their lives in the Colosseum, yes, by eaten, eaten by lions and bears and that sort of thing. That really, go, that really went on. And it's still going on in our day to some degree. I saw a picture of uh, Kim, I, I can never remember this guy's name, Kim Jong-un, the young man who is the um, uh, dictator of North Korea. He has assumed his father's name that was designated to his father by their parliament or whatever they call it as the eternal president. And there are two monumental statues. They look like they were made out of bronze. Um, you know, I, I don't know how tall, like real tall. And it's a, a statue of his father and of his grandfather, who were the dictators of North Korea. And everyone was in front of those statues, bowing down in worship to the state. Now, that's what's happening to the Roman church, uh, the church in the Roman Empire in its day. So there's pressure from outside the church to worship the emperors. But there was also pressure from inside the church through false teachers, false prophets, sin, sexual sin, and sexual immorality. We see that in the first three chapters of the book of Revelation. So what John is doing is basically saying a very simple thing. Stay strong in the faith. Don't cave in. Be an overcomer. Be a conqueror over these pressures, no matter what those pressures may be. And he needed the church to know the end of the story. And the end of the story is that Christ wins over all the enemies of the kingdom of God. And that was intended to propel his churches and the believers to continue to live faithfully even to the death. So what we're going to do is to look at the first eight verses, which are a kind of overture of where John is going to go in all of these uh, uh, one and a half chapters. We're going to look at what happens at that point uh, why it happens, and who is there when it happens, when the new earth and the new heavens come down. So let's take a look at the first three verses. Um, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, 
for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. Now hold on to those two thoughts. The, the passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down, hold on to that word, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. Now, I've called this demo day. This is what's happening. This part of the vision is like John with a wide-angle lens taking in the expansive scenery of history when the new heavens and the new earth are descending into the earth. Before all of this, chapter 19, Satan, the beast, the false prophet, and all their followers have been judged. They have been uh, condemned to the lake of fire where sulfur burns and fire burns and they're tormented day and night forever. That's chapter 19. And then John sees the first uh, creation order being removed and the next, the second order coming. So passed away. When I read that word passed away, I immediately thought of Peter's remark in 1 Peter 3, where he says everything is burned up. And I thought, well, is, is, pass, is passed away? Is it burned up? What, what's going on here? The more closely I looked at what Peter was talking about was that his focus was on the coming of Jesus and the crisis moment that that's going to be. When, you know, the sky is ripped open and everybody sees him. It's a very loud, public, everyone in the world's going to see it kind of event. Nothing like we've ever seen before. And with that comes judgment. But John's focus is what happens next. So Peter sees that. John sees what's next, and that's what we're talking about, what's next. So, um, the old earth is the old order of the earth and the way things are, which is what we experience right now. They are removed, and the new one comes. But I want you to notice, remember I said, what is it about the sea? I mean, I'm, look, I came from Colorado. I love the ocean. We don't have oceans in Colorado. We have reservoirs, for crying out loud. I like oceans. What do you mean there's going to be no sea? I was very disappointed, and I wasn't the only one. I heard about it between services. Okay, so what's going on? I've got about a dozen commentaries on my shelves about Revelation, and every one of them had at least two options. So it was like 24 different ways of thinking about this. And the funniest to me was the commentator who said, well, the reason there's no more seas is because people are no longer thirsty. I said, really? Have you, have you been drinking salt water lately? It ain't going to make you unthirsty. It's going to make you sick. So I, I put that book away. Here's what I think John is pointing to. Remember, this is, a, this is an image, a symbol, something standing in for something else. He's giving us an overview of what's taking place. And what's taking place is this, the seas are gone as a metaphor for what is coming. And he took this, I think, from Isaiah 57. And Isaiah, I think, is his favorite Old Testament book. And here's what Isaiah wrote. But those who still reject me are like the restless sea. That's a metaphor. Those who reject me are like the restless sea. What is it about the restless sea? 
they, they, which is never still, but continually churns up mud and dirt. There is no peace for the wicked, says the Lord. You've seen nor'easters and you've seen hurricanes and you see the junk that they churn up on the coastlines as the, as the waves slam into the seawalls and sometimes are broken down and they pull away the sands of the beach. And you, the, the destructive power of the seas was a dangerous place for the people of John's day and, and still is to some degree for our day, isn't it? I mean, we have these huge, huge boats that are supposed to never sink. Like the Titanic, the boat that was claimed that even God couldn't sink. And on her first voyage, guess what happened? She sank. She's still there. So the seas were looked at by the Israelites and on all the cultures around them as a very dangerous place. Because they're always turning over. They're always restless. They're always churning up all kinds of things. And this is a metaphor for people who have rejected the loving kindness of the Lord. So this is a very helpful way for us to understand the chaos that's going on in the world. Nations rising against nation, wars, rumors of wars, fights, conflict everywhere. It's like the unsettling sea. You know, Augustine wrote that this, you have made us for yourself, O Lord, and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. Isn't that true? Isn't that true? We are restless people. We're always wanting more. We're always wanting peace. And it's always seeming elusive. It's just beyond our reach. And then when our hearts find Christ, there's a sense of settledness, a sense of peace, a sense of calm. But notice how this chaos comes to an end. It's because the new city of Jerusalem comes down out of heaven. It doesn't come up. It comes down. There's a significant reason for John saying that. All the nations want to create a utopia. We pass laws for all kinds of justice. We pass laws for all kinds of love your neighbor kind of stuff. We do this over and over and over again. Has there ever been ever total justice at any nation in the world ever? No. Why? Because humanity, can, humanity without God cannot create utopia. It must come down from God. When God brings himself and his city and his king's rule into this world, there will be peace, there will be justice, there will be love. And until that happens, it's all a sham. It will not take place by human ingenuity, human laws, or human effort. It's not going to happen. It can only happen when Christ is king. So that's why John is importantly saying to us that this utopia that we long for, and it's right to long for it, can only be found in the community where God reigns. And that's the problem. He must reign. It says that he dwells with men. This is the same word, by the way, that John used for the word tabernacle. Remember, you know, the tabernacle where Moses could meet with God. Moses was the only one who could meet God face to face. Then in the temple, there was the holy place, the holy of holies, where only the high priest could meet with God just once a year. But now, as John said, 
Jesus came and he tabernacled among us. Exactly the same word. Jesus dwelt among us. He tabernacled. He stayed. He was permanent. He was with us and we beheld his glory. So in the new creation, God permanently lives with his people face to face. A perfect community, as we'll see next week, about a perfect community of love and peace and righteousness. And as far back as the book of Leviticus, God promised that this was his goal. In fact, it started in Genesis, but it says this in Leviticus. I will make my dwelling among you, and my soul shall not abhor you, and I will walk among you, and I will be your God, and you will be my people. That is covenant language saying, basically, I'm making this promise to you, and nothing will ever break it. So after demolition day comes renovation day, verses 4 through 6. This is what happens, and John describes what's taking place by what's absent. I think this is fascinating. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be any mourning, nor crying, nor pain. How many of you like to wake up tomorrow morning? No pain. Yeah? Yeah, me too. Absolutely. We can't even imagine what that would be like. But no pain, no crying, no pain anymore. The former things, the, the things, not, not our memories, not our understanding or relation to one another, uh, but, but rather all those former things that caused us pain and harm, they have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, behold, I am making all things new. That's like a drop the mic kind of statement. I am making these things new. And he also said then to John, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and they are true. And he said to me, it's done. I'm the Alpha, the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. John's now turning our attention towards the new creation and what it's going to be like. And, he, and it just stretches his ability to communicate this in, in language that we can understand as he tells us about the glorious reality of Christ, what it means when he dwells with his people. As the new covenant is superior to the old, the new creation is superior also to the old. But notice that John can only describe what that's like by the things that are missing and what's missing. Tears, sorrow, crying, death. These are all the characteristics of this current creation that we live in. Isn't that true? You know, if you watch the news at night, there's very seldom ever good news, is there? It's all about murders that take place. It's all about disasters going on around the world. I mean, after a half an hour of that, you sort of get depressed, like, what in the world am I listening to this stuff for? I, don't, I know this stuff is going on. We're living right in the middle of it. But in the new creation, the new creation, redeemed people are those who have trusted in Christ and they've been faithful to him all the way to the end where they will enjoy purity of life, dignity, beauty, and glory. Now, I said that I think John's favorite Old Testament book is Isaiah. He takes... What he just said here, he reaches back into Isaiah chapter 65 in order to show that. So let's read through. It's a rather long passage, but I want you to see the parallel. For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth. There it is. That's what John wrote. And the former things shall not be remembered or come into mind. But be glad 
and rejoice forever in that which I create. For behold, I create Jerusalem to be a joy. Has anybody ever thought of a city as a joyful place? Like, you know, New York? Did you go to New York to find joy? Well, some people do. Or gladness? The new city of Jerusalem will be a place of joy and gladness. I will rejoice in Jerusalem and be glad in my people. God is going to be glad in his people, glad with us. No more shall be heard in it the sound of weeping and the cry of distress. No more shall there be in it an infant who lives but a few days or an old man who does not fulfill out his days. For the young man shall die a hundred years old and the sinner a hundred Years shall be accursed. This doesn't mean that there are sinners there. All that Isaiah is doing is saying, you know what we experience here? We call it, you know, a premature death. It's never going to happen in heaven. It's not going to happen. People are going to live a, a, a very long time, forever, in fact. And Isaiah goes on. They shall build houses and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and eat their fruit. They shall not build and another inhabit. They shall not plant and another eat. For like the days of a tree shall the days of my people be. And my chosen shall live long and enjoy the work of their hands. They shall not labor in vain or bear children for calamity. For they shall be the offspring of the blessed of the Lord and their descendants with them. Before they call, he's talking about prayer, before they call, while I, before they call, I will answer. While they are yet speaking, I will hear. I love this part. The wolf and the lamb shall graze together. The lion shall eat straw like an ox. And the dust shall be the serpent's food. There you go. Remember the serpent? He was cursed to eat dust all the rest of his days. And he still will. Thank God. Now, I would have preferred no snakes in heaven. I talked to a lot of women between the services who would have thought, we don't need snakes in heaven. We'll just leave that up to God. But apparently, these snakes will never do any harm, and they will never be better than eating dust, God's dust. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, says the Lord. So you see, John is picking up on these very themes that he sees in Isaiah 65, and he's basically saying, we're going to live happily ever after. Now, I know that sounds kind of silly. How many of you liked fairy tales when you were growing up? Come on, admit it. Put your hands high and be proud. I love fairy tales. How many of you still read fairy tales today? Not as many. Why is that? We grow up. We grow up. We know life's not like a fairy tale, but apparently God is going to end his story like a fairy tale, happily ever aftering. That's what God is going to do. And that's why we like fairy tales, or we used to. But now we're old and mature. We know better, right? No. We have a fairy tale ending right here. There's a wonderful interchange of dialogue between um, uh, Sam Gamgee and Gandalf in The Lord of the Rings. And there's a particular phrase in here that just captures the idea. And Tolkien knew it. Knew it. Gandalf, uh, Sam says to Gandalf, when they had been apart for so long, they find each other again. And, and uh, Sam says, Gandalf, I thought you were dead. But then I thought I was dead myself. Is everything sad 
going to come untrue? Think about that. Everything sad, is that going to come untrue? What's happening in the world? And to which Gandalf answers, a great shadow has departed. And then he laughed, and the sound was like music. And he listened, and as he listened, he thought, the thought came to Sam that he had not heard laughter, the pure sound of merriment for days upon days without count. Is everything going to come, everything sad going to come untrue? Yes! That's the happy ending of Christ when he comes and establishes his reign. Tolkien was very picking up on these very themes of joy in creation when he wrote that interchange. So what does this mean for us, for those who will be there? Just this, it just means no more sorrow, no more pain, no, nothing to cause sorrow or pain, everything provided for, totally happy community, totally secure community, totally significant people who are totally at peace. Can you live with that? We will forever. That's the promise of God. Harmless people, sinless people, living side by side with harmless wolves. I'm sort of hoping for a lion as a pet. See, I've got the Shih Tzu at home, and they are called the lion dog. And he's okay, but I want a real one, not a real lion dog. I just want a real lion as a friend. Sort of like the one that was in uh, Narnicles, uh, uh, Chronicles of Narnia. Aslan. Might be that. That's where these images come from, my friends. Out of Isaiah 65 and out of Revelation 21. So, we've had um, Demolition Day. We have Renovation Day. What's next? Well, who are the people who are there when all this happens? That's in verses 7 and 8. And this is kind of sobering and is meant to be by John. The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. That's the language of covenant. God will not break. This is the heritage that believers have. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars. Their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Overcomers, conquerors, who are they? The words are interchangeable depending on your translation, you know, New American or ESV or whatever. Overcomers. Now, I'm going to teach you a Greek word. It's a word you already know because it's the brand that we all understand or have recognized. And the word is Nike. Everybody say Nike. Nike is the Greek word that stands for conqueror, overcomer. We are Nike Christians. Christians who are faithful to Jesus to the end of their lives or, or even having given up their lives, overcome every obstacle that's come their way to stop them in their perseverance. And we see in the first uh, three chapters of Revelation that these churches were facing 
terrible pressures, and they had to overcome. And if they overcame, they would receive a new name, or they would receive something from the Lord as a blessing, a crown, whatever. And those are the people who would overcome the obstacles that came their way to being a Christian. So this word Nike reminds us that what it takes to be a Christian, and it's not complicated, it's simply this. To be a Christian means you persevere in the faith and good works throughout the rest of your life. That's all it means. That's a Nike Christian who walks consistently in the truth of Christ, obeys the truth of Christ, regardless of what the secular headwinds are, regardless of the social persecutions, regardless of the personal rejections, we remain faithful all the way through the threats, even to the end. That's a Nike Christian. That's the one that will enjoy these benefits. So who are the cowards? What are they like? These are the fearful ones. These are the ones who reject Christ. Remember the verse from Isaiah about the sea. They reject the Lord. They reject Christ. They deny him. They allow themselves to be enticed by the allurements of the harlot in chapter 19. And that's the allurements of the world. The world is so alluring. It's, a, it's sort of a vanity fair. It's just so attractive. I mean, I just want everything that life has to offer. I've got to have it all before. It's all got to be on my bucket list. Jesus called these root, rootless people when he gave the parable of the soils in Matthew 13. He said, as for, those, as for what was sown on the rocky ground, this is the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy, yet he has no root in himself, but endures for a while. And when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the, world, of the word, immediately he falls away. So where are you? Conqueror or coward? Don't. Uh, if you're in that second group, seriously consider what it means for you if you stay there. Ask God to give you the strength to be courageous and love the Lord Jesus and his gospel because that's what it will take for you to stand strong. Now, I said at the beginning of this uh, sermon that this was an overture that John wrote. You know, it's like the music of heaven to set our hearts on it. And so the goal for, this, for these sermons is to encourage us to keep our sights on the realities of heaven and, and not to believe the lie that be, being heavenly-minded is no good. You've heard that story, right? Yeah, all the speakers are heavenly-minded. You're just no earthly good. Are you kidding me? To be heavenly-minded is the only way to be earthly good. It is the only way to be filled with the love of God that propels you to do things that are good for other people as if they really mattered more than you. That's what it means to be heavenly-minded. So there are three... Um, Three final things to be said about setting our sights on the realities of heaven. The first one is this, that a heart set on heaven reveals what the heart most treasures. You know, Jesus said in Matthew 6, 21, where your heart is, that's where your treasure is going to be. If the things of the world are where your heart finds the most strength or most security, um, 
the finest things that life has to offer so that you feel successful and you have a significant community position for personal dignity, then your life is going to reflect that and everything in your life is going to be governed by that focus and desire. You're going to organize your entire life around that thing. I did a funeral several years ago where, where the man was not a believer. Some people there knew him were but everyone who got up to speak for him in his family said the most important thing about him is he knew every baseball stat and every batter in the league for decades i just thought this is sad this is not funny the only thing that could be said about this man was that he loved baseball i love baseball too but not like that if you treasure christ your life is going to look like that. It's going to taste like that. You will be known as someone who knows grace, has tasted the sweetness of Christ, and who served others as if they really mattered more than you. What we worship is what we become. So also who we worship is who we become. And that is our transformation. Um, Oops, sorry. A heart that is set on heaven will be transformed. It's my favorite verse in the Bible is 2 Corinthians 3.18 because it says, And we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. So as the Holy Spirit is working in us, as we are beholding Christ, we become more and more like Christ, reflecting his glory. So how does that work? What it, what it means is, behold the glory of the Lord. How do we do that? We do that by staying in the scriptures. We read the scriptures every day. We see what God is like. We see what Jesus is like. We see what he has called us to. We, we pray. We pray for others. We pray with others. We have others pray for us. We gather together in the worship of God in the believers in the Lord's day. We spend time with believers in fellowship and talking with them about what God is doing in my life. What's God doing in your life? and sharing what God is doing in our life. And as we do all of those disciplines, we are beholding the glory of the Lord, and we don't even realize that we are being changed into the image of Christ. It's happening, sort of below the radar, but it is happening to us. So whatever, whatever you are giving yourself to, to behold, is you're becoming that thing. What kind of screens have you got in front of you? Phones, iPads, computers. I know we have to work with them. I don't, I don't mean that, but I mean when you don't have the work to do, what are you looking at? What are you spending your time at? You know, I like to do crossword puzzles on my phone. If I spend too much time on it, I'm going to start looking like one. Yeah, Bob looks like a crossword puzzle. He doesn't even know how to spell. Whatever we give ourselves to, that's what we become. So if we give ourselves to beholding the glory of the Lord in Jesus Christ by studying the Bible, attending small groups, prayer, and so on, these are the spaces where we see Christ, and by them and in them, the Spirit begins our own personal renovation. Now, the personal renovation that's going on with us, inside us, is the same renovation that we've been talking about here. Same Spirit, same kind of renovation all new, all new. 
And finally, a heart that is set on heaven is a joyful heart, a joyful heart. Psalm 16, verse 11 says that in the presence of the Lord is the fullness of joy. In the presence of the Lord is the fullness of joy. I've already talked about all those spaces. Let's take this spiritual truth and translate it by a natural truth. Now, many of you know I'm from Colorado, and I love Colorado in February, much more than Massachusetts in February. You know why? We're at sea level here. Colorado is one mile higher closer to the sun, 5,280 feet. And you know what happens when it snows in February in Colorado? The snow comes down. Now, people get this notion that, you know, there's tons of snow in Colorado. Well, there is in the high country above 12,000 feet. But where we live, not so much. And the snow comes down, looks really nice, it's really, really pretty. And I look at it and go, you know, I don't even have to shovel this stuff because by the end of the day, with the sun out, it's all gone. It's off the roads, it's off the sidewalks, I don't have to shovel it. I was surprised to learn several years ago that the city of Denver owns only 65 plows. I think Uxbridge probably owns 65 plows, to be honest with you. Because we don't have to shop, we don't have to, you know, they do plow the roads at times, but not much because it turns to slush before the day is out. Now, if you want to be warm in February, other than Florida, where do you want to go? Yeah, thank you. That's where the sun, you're closer to the sun. The closer you are, the warmer it is. I recall riding my motorcycle in February in Colorado for a few years. The principle is true. The more joy that you want, the closer you need to be to our Savior, Jesus. It's really simple. In the presence of the Lord is joy. You want joy, you must be in his presence. He delights to make you joyful. He delights to fill us with his joy. In Psalm 37, it says, delight yourself in the Lord. That's a command, by the way, not just a good suggestion. Psalm 37, 4, read it sometime. It's a command in any language. So here is God. Think about this. Here is God commanding us to do something that's really hard to do. I can stir up all my delight in God. No, you don't. The reason he's commanding it is because we knows we can't do it, so he's commanding us to do something he can't do so that he can give us the power and the grace to do what he commands us to do because it delights him. It delights God to give us the grace to delight in him. This is amazing. This is our God. So when you find yourself, you're not delighting in the Lord, you're going, ah, ho-hum, stop. Ask the Lord, God, just give me grace to delight in you, to delight over my salvation, to delight in knowing the Lord is my God. And watch what happens. You will delight in the Lord. You will fulfill his command because he gives you the grace to do it. Now, we are going to uh, close in prayer. And I was mindful of the fact that the people that John was writing to were all um, pressured by various persecutions coming on the life of the church from the state, from the Roman Empire, from within the church because of corruption and sin and all of that sort of thing. 
But I think this applies to any of us who are suffering anything at all. And I know there are people here this morning who are suffering in some ways, some, some with chronic pain, some with the loss of a friend, a family, a job, who, who knows, suffering. And because this is a vision for those who suffer, I thought it would be good for us to pray together for anyone here who is suffering or anyone that we know who is suffering. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, you said that you would bless anyone who reads John's prophecy, anyone who listens to his message and obeys it. And we are studying this portion of Scripture with the intention not only of hearing it or listening to it, but also obeying it. And part of obeying it is taking the time to meditate on the realities of the things that are above so, Father, we ask for all of those in our church or those outside our church in our families and our neighborhoods who we know, we know are suffering. And we pray that you will meet them in their need and lift the eyes of their faith to the things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God to make intercession for us. And, and Father, when anyone around us, any Christian that we know, is tempted to throw the towel in on their faith. Let them savor the sweetness of Christ's love and even use us so that they might. When anyone cries out to you because of chronic pain, answer them with the comforts of body and soul. Where there is devastating loss, bring peace, the peace that passes understanding and the provisions of heaven to meet those needs. And for all of us, O oh Lord, Draw us nearer to yourself, dwelling in your presence, and giving us the power of grace to delight ourselves in the Lord. We pray this in Jesus' name. And everybody said, amen. Let's all stand and sing together before we dismiss.